Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Shattered Gradient. Two weeks ago, we were both competing at the Intel International Science and Engineering Fair, which is the largest pre-collegiate science fair in the world. While we were there, we met Mr. David Holes, who was judging for the machine learning category, and he agreed to do an interview on our podcast. Mr. Holes is the founder and CTO of the tech company Leap Motion, which develops hand tracking devices for AR and VR applications. Uh, Hi. Uh, hello, Mr. Holes. So, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit? Thanks for coming on our podcast. Sure. Uh, my name is David Holes. I'm the co founder and CTO at Leap Motion. Uh, we do all the hand tracking that you see, is probably from us. So, you know. <laughs> We've heard of your product, it's really cool, and I'm sure many of the listeners have probably tried it as well. So, how did you get your start in this field? Um, uh, I mean, so I was I was an ICEF contestant in, gosh, I don't remember what the exact year was, it was probably like 2006 or seven, really long time ago, back when there were dinosaurs. Uh, and, uh, um, uh, well, I was actually tracking sounds in three. In, in, I was actually tracking sounds in three-dimensional space. So I was I was really wow. interested in tracking, and I, part of it was human-computer interfaces, like how do we interact with computers. And originally, I wanted to like track hands with like dolphin sonars through air or something, but like I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I'm like, let's just track something. So wow. track sounds, and so I actually had a, I had a microphone array built into my science fair board, uh, and then it would actually, as we talked about the project and we moved around the board, it would actually show us in 3D. Uh, from our voices, that uh, moving around. Really it was cool. really cool. It was really cool. Yeah. Uh, we, uh, I was in physics. I got third place. It's hard getting third place here. Let me tell you, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah, sure. these are good projects. Uh, everyone's so good. Um, and uh, uh, got some scholarships. It was, it was great. Some, you know, special awards. It was a really good experience. Uh, I've been doing science fairs all my life. Actually, it was like. I think I've done, I'm like 30 now, and I think I've done 17 science, I've been part of 17 science fairs. Wow. So I did science fairs like first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, fifth grade, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade, ninth grade, tenth grade, twelfth grade, and then I started, after twelfth grade, I started, I, I had one more science fair awards than anybody in my county, and so I just started judging at the county uh, right afterwards, so I started judging every single year, but then I came back to ISEF, started judging at ISEF, so it's like I was born and raised to judge science fair projects, let me tell you. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Really cool, I, yeah. I would imagine that um, science fair taught you a lot about, you know, how to... You know, build products build and products, stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, what was it like transitioning from science fair to you know the uh, to Silicon Valley? Um, well, I think it's important to understand that like what you guys are doing at sci- at the science fair is like kind of what like any like entrepreneur or inventor or innovator is going to be doing their whole life. You know, you have to you want to do something new somebody hasn't done before. Nobody can tell you how to do it. You have to teach yourself. You have to learn not just one thing, but lots of different types of things. You have to piece it together. You have to be able to sort of independently, like you know, kind of keep track of yourself, organize your own research. You have to do lots of tests. You have to have hypotheses. You have to bring it all together, and you have to be able to tell people what you did. And like, uh, there, it's actually, it's and it may seem normal to you now, and you're all very good at it but it's not normal in the world. Most people can't do those things, and you're all very special for being able to do that. Even in Silicon Valley, it's not, it's not, it's not super common, actually, to be able to do all those things. So in many ways, right now, you're all like even above, even above there. Uh, and, uh, and I was bringing my friend here from Silicon Valley, and, and, I was, and he's very connected, as am I, and we were both saying, this is probably the like, highest concentration of smart kids in the world. Like, this is it. 
doesn't get more, doesn't get better than this. The math wouldn't be, it's pretty good too, but it's very small in comparison to 1,600 kids this year. So it's pretty amazing and uh, it's very special. Uh, so, I mean, uh, so, but as a kid, I didn't really know all this. Like, I didn't really, I'm like, I did science projects, a lot of other kids did science I didn't even get time to look at a lot of the other projects. And so I was like, okay, that was cool. And I'm going to college, I'm like, you know, I really don't know a lot of things. People at college seem to know lots of things. And so I'm learning lots of things at college. I get a, I got a, I got double degrees in math and physics. Uh, I did two theses for each, because like a thesis is just like a little scientific project, you know? And, uh, which is not normal, apparently. Uh, but uh, somewhere around there, I started like people were doing other research. I'm like, hey, like there was Max Planck. They're doing brain research and adapt. And I'm like, that's cool. I'll help them a little bit. There was UNC Chapel Hill was doing fluid mechanics. I helped them a little bit too. I knew some people. I knew some people at NASA. I'm like, okay, I'll help from NASA too. And all of a sudden, everybody wants my help. And I'm like, wow, why does everybody want my help? I don't really know why. And it's basically because of all of the skills and stuff that that, that all of you have actually being part of the science fair. Is that you can do research. You can ask the right questions. You can teach yourself. You can be multidisciplinary. And you can explain things everybody at the end which again is not actually a really special thing and uh and so all of a sudden i went from like i don't know anything to like being part of 12 different research groups and, yeah, yeah. and everyone's uh, like hey we need for this hey we need you for this and i'm like okay okay and i'm going all around and i uh and uh, uh actually that's how i got into my phd program eventually because they really wanted my they, i was helping them and they really want they keep like i was like i kept they needed they wanted my help still and i was like well, i need to go for a new phd program and it actually helped me get into my PhD program. It was actually oh, wow. helping people with research, which I was just doing for fun. Wow. And uh, um, so, okay, I'm working on my PhD program, and all these other people are talking to me, and I eventually I'm like, why? I kind of step back. I'm like, whoa, I'm like working with like 12 different research groups. This isn't normal. Like, why am I doing this? And I'm like, whoa, okay. I think I'm doing this because I'm doing so many different projects because actually I don't care enough about any one of them to only do one. And I just, what I really want is I want to just focus on one thing that I really care about. I just want to do every, put everything into that. And so I said, well, what do I really want to work on? And I, uh, one of the 12 projects I was working on in my spare time was actually a hand tracking. But it wasn't for anybody, it was just for me. And that kind of went all the way back to middle school where I was trying to like learn how to do 3D models on a computer. And I was like, this is really hard. And I was like, well, it's, why is this hard? Like, I can go to art class, I can build stuff with my hands. That's not hard. And computers, there's lots of stuff on computers that's 3D. So the computers should be okay too. There's nothing wrong with me, there's nothing wrong with computers, so what's going on? I was like, well, something must be breaking down in between me and the computers, which is the way that they interact. And I realized it doesn't matter how smart we are or how powerful technology is, what we do together fundamentally comes from how we interact, and that the interaction between people and computers has become one of the biggest limitations in people and technology in the world, and I wanted to work on that. And that's why I'm passionate, I really want to just focus on that. So I went to my grad, I went to my uh, PhD advisor, I'm like, I'm thinking of taking a break, I went to NASA, I'm like, we do taking a break. And, uh, you know, some people are like, okay, we'll support you, you can always come back. Some people are like, you're dead to me. <laughs> but, like, they were still very nice. Uh, and some people were like, oh, no, 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 why don't we just, you know, keep your laptop, keep all your equipment, just, just keep working for us in the past, you'll keep doing it, we know you'll keep working on our stuff. You know, even though you say you're taking a break, you're not really taking a break, David. I'm like, yeah, no, I'm taking a break. And so I took a break from all the things, and I started talking to investors, and I started working harder on just this one thing, and, uh, I moved out to Silicon Valley, and uh, I um, actually I, I, I met up with a friend who I who I knew from middle school, like uh, early friends. They still stay through, and I was like, hey, I'm thinking of starting a company. He's like, hey, you know, Dave, I just sold my second company, and like, you know, I just came back from Madagascar helping with all these ten thousand, like giving thousands of ch children laptops. I was like, I don't want to do a new thing. I'm like, okay, let's team up, and then we both moved out to Silicon Valley, 
start talking to investors, um, and uh, you know, we, we raised one, I guess we, we raised uh, about, you know, a bit more than a million dollars to kind of bring people in and start things off. But wow. before that happened, I had basically built out prototypes, demos, we had cool videos, I had to be able to explain it, all of the things that you guys have to do right now, kind of in the side project, still kind of have to do there too. The only difference is now I have the project and I'm like, we want to make this into a product and here's our business plan and if you give us this money, then you'll get more money back because it's going to be awesome. And, uh, and you know, it doesn't always work that not everybody understands. So like I was talking to one investor and I was, uh, I was like, I was, it, it was a 3D, it was an early link motion demo, uh, which no one really talks about, but like I was, there was like a giant mountain on the wall and it was in 3D, everybody had 3D glasses on. And I was like rotating the wall around and I was pulling the mountain out of the wall and I was like putting it back in. It was really cool. And everyone's just looking with their glasses and they're nodding. And then, and then, and then, and then the one guy in charge in front, he steps forward and he takes his glasses off slowly and goes, I understand. And I go, yeah? He's like, yeah, I just have one question for you. I'm like, yeah? He goes, can you also track things in two dimensions? And I'm like, well, you see, this is a great question because we track things in 3D right now, and 3D is like 2D, but in multiple directions at the same time. So you see, it is the same. He goes, I see, I see. So have you thought about giving the first two dimensions away for free and then charging for the third dimension? Oh. And I'm like, no, I had never thought of that. I never thought of that. You just think about that. They're like, oh, I will. And we didn't get money from him. But the idea is that like, not everybody understands what you do, no matter what you do, no matter how well you speak to it. But speaking to it well and having the determination and going out there, you know, only one person has to say yes. You know, at a big company, it's sometimes hard to innovate because if you have a cool idea, they ask their boss, and their boss asks their boss, and their boss asks their boss's boss. And if anyone says no, then it's no. But in one of the cool things about being an entrepreneur is that if you you can you can ask a thousand investors and if one of them says yes, you're good. <laughs> Which sounds a little crazy, but also once one says yes, then another one's like, wait, we got this one investor. Okay, everyone wants to be follow. No one wants to be the first investor. No one wants to be the first employee. That's why ideally you're the first employee. You're the first investor. You're building your own stuff. You're making your own things, and that helps a lot. Um, yeah. So that's a little bit of the story. Uh, what else can I answer for you? I guess would you um, would you have any advice for students who are you know here at ISAF or otherwise you know other science fairs otherwise interested in um, science and technology? Would you have any advice for students who are looking to, to start their own companies or um, go to Silicon Valley or, or you know otherwise kind of move on to the real world? You know. Mm. Uh, so one thing that I one thing that I didn't realize when I was younger that I wish I had known is that like. Being young is a superpower. If you walk up to anybody, like an expert, anybody you respect, you can just, you can just like, this is a person I respect and I want to know something. You just be like, excuse me, sir, I'm a young person and I have a question. And they'll like, like it's almost like a hack. Like you have like super secret <laughs> wizard hacks. And if you just say that, like they just lose, they're like, okay, whatever you need, just tell me what you want to know and I will answer your question. That's not true when you grow older. At some point, if, I, if, I, if I'm like 30 and I ask them a question, they're like, why are you talking to me? <laughs> Whereas if it's like, if you're a young person with a question who wants to know something, people will just answer because they want to help. People actually want to be helpful. They want to feel like they want to feel, they want to feel like they're improving the world. And when you're at this early stage, everyone wants to help. And so it doesn't cost anything. Like no one will be angry at you. Man, that kid who asked me a question, I really hated his guts. No one says that. And so, you know, early on you really have this superpower and it's important to understand that everyone wants to help. And uh, I think that's really important. And if somebody doesn't want to help, just ignore them. They don't matter. Like, in general, like, really everyone wants to help. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's really, really cheap to ask. 
Yeah, and, and, and I've been amazed over the years by what you get by just asking. And you'll learn things, you'll get friends, people will support you. And you know, you wanna, building up those relationships also helps a lot later down the world, like road. They sort of say if you're investing in money, if you make like 5% more money a year, if you just increase your money by 5% every year, you'll have like 10x the money in 10 years. The same thing goes with like friends and connections and people. You know, and that you eventually have more and more and more people, and you eventually have all these people who support you, and I like, and you can support them, and it's just a, it's a really important thing is invest, you know, invest in yourself, and also invest in in, in others, and you know, um, have but back at it. I mean, uh, uh, let's see. Um, you need a return about thirty percent a year to ten x ten years. Thirty percent APR is a realistic APR. Yeah, so especially socially, uh, and uh, Silicon Valley is a really interesting place in that, like it's really hard to understand just how concentrated like the technology is. Science maybe not as much, but even the science is pretty good. Um, like there's a lot of really good science out there to the point where like you might be getting coffee and someone's like, yo, I'm working on an AI algorithm to do this with this. <laughs> and they're like, this is my, I'm in a coffee shop and like there's just AI people next to me. Yeah, yeah. Or someone was like, hey, do you know this AI person, that person? I'm like, yeah, no, I, I go to this. We're all at the same Christmas parties, you know? So everyone's like talking to each other and you kind of get a weird. Yeah, well, one of our, um when I was in the Valley recently for a conference, one of our Uber drivers was a uh, Bitcoin analyst who was out of a job. Yeah, no, that <laughs> happens. Yeah. And you never really know who anyone is. So it's like, and so it's always like, be really nice. Yeah. Because <laughs> mm. uh, like, yeah, uh, but uh, but it's cool. Uh, and, and you kind of, and as you kind of know all these people, you, like you kind of know, like everyone talks about what they're working on. So you kind of get the trends, people are thinking. Sometimes I, I get stuck, like we'll have a really weird AI problem that like nobody at our company knows how to solve. And I can just go to like one of the head people and be like, like one of the top people in the field and be like, hey, this is really weird, isn't it? Oh yeah, that's weird. What do you think it is? And we all just talk about it and we come up with some ideas. And so one of the great things about the AI field in particular is that everybody's kind of on the same side. They're all like, look, we all know that people are paying us money, but really we want to make artificial general intelligence and become giant supercomputers <laughs> in the cloud, and right? <laughs> wink, wink. Yeah. And so everyone's kind of on the same side, even though they're all working for different people. And that's one really nice thing about the AI field also. Out there. Medical, like medical too? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's good. And also like a lot of the field, like especially in AI, everything's open, like the journals and publications and even companies are keeping their stuff open, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's... I would say, in general, the AI openness is way more than just about any field. I think there's some, it's like, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. I'd say it's, it's pretty good on the whole, and especially with the tools, like the basic tools are all out there. So people, like, even though when people like keep some of their infrastructure secret, like eventually like somebody makes it open source, it's getting out there. It's in a really good place. The field is improving really great. It's like one of my favorite fields right now. I think it's one of the best places to be. It's like, there's some things that are just superpowers, where it's like no matter what you do, it like makes you better. Like programming is a superpower. Like if I want if you want to work on like cats, then like programming probably will help you work with cats, like in some way. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you'll like automate something, or you have like and so or whether you and the same the other one I think that's maybe math, because like often like the difference between be, like knowing math and not knowing math can be huge. You can let you use it to solve things. Linear algebra. Linear algebra. Everyone likes linear algebra. Yeah. yeah. Uh, math. Um, and uh, I think AI is another one right now. Um, and so, you know, there are times where I would work with people on projects that I probably wasn't qualified to work on, but because I could program and I knew AI, like, oh my God, we need your help. There was this time where I was working with a brain scientist and he's like, so what do you, like, what are your, what's your background, David? And I'm like, oh, you know, I'm just a physics guy. I don't really know anything about brains. He's like, oh, thank, thank God. Cause I'm just a biology guy. I don't know anything about physics and really it's all physics. And none <laughs> of us know what's going on. And like, that's a lot of them feel that way is that like you need these tools to actually solve the problems now.
it's hard to solve these problems without these special tools. A lot of the problems that you could solve without math, without computers, without AI, have been solved. Um, so a lot of the, a lot of the forward stuff uses these things. Uh, yeah, not everything, but a lot. So while we're on the topic of AI, what do you mm -hmm. think are some of the future? What do you think is the future of AI and machine learning? Like you've mentioned artificial general intelligence. Mm -hmm. What else do you think is in the future? Um, well, one thing I like is I like, and sometimes instead of talking about like AI is deep learning. One of, the, one of the things I like is this broader term of just differentiable software. So the idea is that like, if I, like, uh, the main thing that makes deep learning work is that you can have all these parameters, you can have a system with all these parameters and you can take the, you can take the derivative of the system, which lets you use very, you uh, use something called stochastic gradient descent to tune all the knobs instantly without any, without really any special stuff. And so because you can take the gradient, you can optimize everything automatically. And that's not just true for like a, a big matrix of numbers. It can also be true, you can, you can have any, really it can be any piece of software that is written in a way that lets you take the derivative of it. So basically, if you can write software that you can take the derivative of, then you can have any number of parameters in it, any types of weird knobs will all automatically change. So like, you know, that, like, so um, a lot of people don't know this, but like, um, you know, the derivatives are automatically calculated in the way that a lot of this AI works. And they, they have this call, it's called auto-differentiation. Um, and so that it turns out that you can actually use the same libraries like TensorFlow that people program the deep learning with to actually program very normal algorithms, like, uh, like an inverse kinematics, like robot control system. Like you can just have like a robot kinematic control system, put a deep learning thing on it, and it all differentiates through and it automatically solves robot control problems. Oh, and so wow. you can actually build any piece of software as long as you're building it with those auto differentiable blocks. I mean, to be it'll clear, go through. You, you need to know about robotic control. Yeah. You don't need to know that much about AI. So like the usual rule seems to be that to do something cool, you need like three years of expertise in some something and one year of experience with AI. Yeah, it, I mean, it might be true in the, if you go enough the other way, if you have f three experiences with AI, you might only need one <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. It's really interesting. I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a really, I think it depends on the field, maybe a little bit. Yeah, well, like, in robotics or control theory, and yeah, the maybe. classic AI is thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. That could be. That makes sense. Um, the, uh, oh, so I think thinking of, instead of deep learning, think about differentiable software as a really powerful tool because like anything could be differentiable. Really all software probably could be that way. There's some people who say like, oh, well this isn't really differentiable, but actually in Silicon Valley right now, a lot of people, like we say like, oh, really probably it could be made differentiable. Or if it's not, you can just approximate it with something that is differentiable. And the idea is even if it's not exactly true, if it's approximately true, that's usually good really for most problems. It's very rare that you need something out to like a hundred digits to be correct. Like you just want a solution that works. Although and I was just talking to a guy today who's <laughs> doing a exact rather than approximate method for uh, reflections yeah. in the math section. And that seemed like it was actually an important problem that his yeah. grandfather gave him yeah. because he needed a desktop. That's really cool. Yeah, there are these situations where you need extreme precision and it just goes out nuts. But I do think it's also interesting to think that like maybe precision doesn't always matter. Like it's something we think by default, like it has to be exact, it doesn't necessarily have to be exact. And if it doesn't be exact, then everything can be differentiable. I mean approximating in your head quickly is a universal skill that takes a lot less time to develop. That's a whole learning. separate thing, with the Fermi estimates and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Like doing quick Fermi estimates that work pretty well. Which is another important thing, is like when you're really technical, sometimes it's tempting to like work at everything out exactly, but sometimes just you being approximate in your head kind of being intuitive and fitting patterns to things and kind of going with your gut. Like, it sounds weird. I don't want to be like, there are more nerve endings in your gut than there are in your brain. But, but, maybe not gut, maybe not gut, yeah. But there is this... That's true, that's both. 2 to the 10 to the 10 to the 3rd, 1.01 to the 70th to 2. 
Well, listen, I think there's like there's high E to the six seconds in a year. Yeah. Not really, but physicists say that. Like, it's like not exactly right, but it's like kind of right. So you can actually put it in physics equations and the pi's cancel out, which is like not really okay. But you can cancel out pi's with like time by saying that there's a pi seconds in a year. But like physicists do this stuff all the time. And this is actually, this approximate thinking can be really powerful. Like uh, Fermi estimate, I don't know if you ever heard of Fermi estimates. But it's just this idea that like sometimes you can get like they say how many piano how many people tune pianos in Chicago, like how do I answer that? We'll be like okay, well how many what you know one in a hundred people have pianos? You know the average piano gets tuned twice a year. You just make guess a bunch of things, and then it turns out that each of your guesses are slightly wrong in different directions usually, and they all cancel out. Oh, and so you wow. can just sometimes you can just guess like straight to the end a reasonable thing, and it's pretty accurate. And so there's lots of little tricks like that. Another really cool trick is dimensional analysis. When I was at Chapel, when I was at Chapel Hill. Somebody asked us um, uh, when a water droplet falls off the edge. Fall, when a water droplet falls, it kind of stretches out before it falls, and then it stretches, and, it, and then it sort of releases. And now it's falling, but because it releases, it's actually vibrating, like because it was stretching out, and then it releases. And when it's in the air, it's vibrating up and down from that releasing. And so somebody said, "What is the frequency of a water droplet falling through the air?" And somebody was like, "Oh, I can tell you that." And they went up onto a board and they said, okay, well, so a water triplet has, you know, this many grams per milliliter, it's dropping, the gravity is this many meters per second. They just wrote out all the different things that might be important. And then they said, and the answer is like, you know, uh, vibrations per second in meters per second. And then they just arranged all the things on the left side so that the yeah. turf, so that every, yeah. so that basically all the units canceled out and yeah. they were the units on the right side. And then it was right. Wow. It was, and then they tested it. It was exactly right. Oh, that, that, so that, that, like, yeah, and so this is actually a Russian. This is actually a Russian math technique because I guess you know there are certain times where you just have to solve a problem. <laughs> Back in the day, out in Russia, and you know if you really gotta solve something, you're gonna try some things that maybe an American wouldn't try in NASA with all the billions of dollars. And so that works. And so multiplication with the quadratic equation is way faster than the multiplication they taught you in elementary school. That's true. Yeah. Get used yeah. to doing it in your head. It's much, much better. So yeah, this is like all these little heuristics can be really important, can make you very powerful. I do, yeah. There's this element of like, uh, you still want to, uh, you still feel good about things. Like, uh, like there's this, sometimes it's like, you, you want to be careful that like if you, um, whatever you do, make sure you like feel good about it. Don't try to like, don't don't put yourself in a situation where you're rationalizing like I should feel good about this because of this and this and this, but I don't. Like fundamentally, when you you're all very, I'm sure you're all very smart for like. I'm sure your rational abilities are very strong, but one of the things is like, the purpose of reason is sometimes to make us be actually come up with solutions that we also feel good about. Not just to make ourselves feel good about something we don't feel good about. Yeah, this is very philosophical. Almost 100% of the time, what you're going to find out is you've got some false premise there. Like, That's your, true, your yeah. intuitions are sometimes wrong, but like most of the time when people think that their intuitions are wrong, they're missing something. They're you right, know, yeah. Like, <laughs> never give good explanations. Forget that Democrats never give good explanations. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, the, 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 as you get older, you realize, nope, actually, the, the left is always right. The, the, the right always has better explanations, and the left is al has always has better answers. We're, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we'll hold off on the politics for the podcast too much. Yeah. But. No, that's not really <laughs> <political>. <laughs> This is my friend Vis Michael Vasari. He's very cool. We're Silicon Valley Maverick with me. So we're, we're both uh, checking this out. And this is, um, uh, so what else can we answer for you? Oh, mm, if you want to start a company, start a company. Like, what, like, I think, like, worst case scenario, you go get a job instead. And, like, a lot of people don't realize that. They're like, if I, 
if I start a company and it fails, I'm gonna like starve on the streets. No, you'll probably just go get a job. And like, and it's it's hard. And like, not everybody's that way. Like, not everybody has that privilege. But you know, we're in a very privileged group where the worst thing that could happen to us is we go get a job, mm. <laughs> which is not like yeah. I mean, maybe it's not great sometimes, but it's really not that bad. So, so you have to think. So maybe you're not actually your life isn't really that risky. So that means you should take risks. You know, that like take that freedom and privilege and say, what do I really want to do? Let me revise that. Having a high-paying job is actually that bad. But you can like, <laughs> get by with a low-paying job and be quite happy. You know, it's not nearly as terrible to wash dishes as it is to work in an investment bank. Yeah, don't work in an investment bank. <laughs> yeah, so someday when you get high in that, they're paying you a lot of money because no one wants that job. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you're probably okay in science and tech. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it's you know it's a, it's a, yeah it's an interesting community. Everyone everyone's talking to everyone. Everyone kind of knows everybody. Everyone's working on cool things. Not everyone's working on cool things, but you know if you look at people working on cool things, you can find people with cool things. And Silicon Valley is a very unique place, and the density is just is just more than anything else. Um, yeah, it's uh, got to be careful though as you're like trying to do things. Like there are some people that just want it to be all about money, and like you know you have the, that the, if if you want if you all you want is money, then then that's okay. But if you don't, like, be careful because, you know, sometimes one comes at the cost of another, you know. And if you really want to be happy, you want to innovate, you should probably tell people this is what is actually important to me. Also, there are a lot of people who are actually just horrible and they <laughs> say that they're all about money, but you can tell the difference because they don't have that much money. So, like, people who, like, are 80 years old and are working 60-hour weeks and have billions of dollars, those guys are probably all about money. But people who, like, talk about money all the time and don't have a lot of money but are, like, usually terrible to people, they're going to continue not having money and continue being terrible to people, and you'll probably think that they're rich, especially when you're young and 10 million <laughs> seems like a lot of money. But you can pretty much get t 10 million just by being a liar. Yeah, uh, well, it's so, that's an interesting thing about Silicon Valley is there is money sort of flowing everywhere. <laughs> so, like, and money itself becomes no longer a metric of success or anything working right. Sometimes you can just be like... Yeah, just really charismatic, and you'll have as much money to do whatever you want. But then the problem is, at some point, that's not actually what you want. Unless maybe then it is, but, you know, it's, uh, so just, money's not necessarily a metric of success, you know, of course. So, you have to figure out what's really important to you, and just make sure everyone knows that. And really remind, keep true to that, you know. Uh, and I think you're all really good at what you do, so if you, you know, you'll be, you'll find people, you'll find ways to do it. Like, I, I, I would, yeah, whatever it's worth. Um. Uh, anything else. Oh, another thing I think is really cool. Uh, let's talk about AI for a little bit. So, can you talk about a few more trends in AI that you've sure. noticed lately? There's these two big philosophical ideas right now. Um, some people are starting to say that we've actually solved a lot of the major problems. It's just about having more compute and more data. And we build really big computers and put in a lot of data. <laughs> like, a lot of things that we think are hard are actually just not hard. They'll just be solved. Yeah. And then there's another group of people that say, actually, we don't understand anything. And the biggest problem is that we don't even have ways of measuring intelligence. And like, and that, we, and that basically our benchmarks are like, do we see it's a cat or a dog? But there's no problem solving. There's no planning. We don't actually measure these things, and we don't even have the benchmarks to know if we're getting closer to building real AI. And so, very, very polarizing people. They both hate each other. They're not people a lot of hate. It's like they get very passionate about it. Again, you know. And, uh, um, you know, recently there's this thing with the GPT-2, which was like a big language model 
that like that said you can say like a unicorn was spotted today in San Francisco and I'll start writing a news article about unicorn in San Francisco it's really yeah, cool yeah. and that one was actually just a, a relatively normal algorithm but just with a lot of data and a lot of compute uh, and really good data and it turned out it just blew, all of a sudden it was doing all these things that no one thought that any algorithm could do um, and uh, but then on the flip side you know you could say hey I want to uh, uh, I want to like plan how I'm gonna get like, I want to like plan. Um, I want to create like a narrative of how I'm going to get from here to there, and like, or I want to like plan. I want to do planning, and it's like planning itself because it's very abstract, you know, and like, and it's not even clear how how you talk about it, and so there's this very different. So one group is saying, well, there's one group saying we're basically there. We just need to scale, and the other group says we don't know anything. We can't like don't even scale. We just gotta like we don't even know what we don't know. We have to like measure things first. We have to have new benchmarks. There's like huge things that we're missing. And it's surprising, actually, that some people really think that we're not missing stuff, and some people think that, we, that we're completely missing everything. So it's very polarized right now. So it seems very reminiscent of when we were saying in the 50s that we were there with understanding psychology and it was all operant conditioning. Ooh. Because it's basically the same claim that people were making in the 50s, yeah. that operant conditioning is the one holy grail, and now we're calling it deep learning. But it's even the same basic <laughs> science. And like that was just nonsense in the 50s, and they were saying that, you know, and Chomsky built a political coalition to point out that they had made no progress on grammar, and we've still made no progress on grammar. There's, there's definitely, definitely when, when, anybody say, when, his, when anybody says that we know everything we already need to know, history is not on their side. <laughs> but there is, on the flip side, there's this really interesting thing happening, which is that we can train with more and more data and more and more compute, and we see a curve. And the curve's not just going to stop. Like, whatever that curve looks like, it's probably going to keep going a little bit. It could level off, but it's probably... And so there's definitely an indication that if you scale things, you have more data, a lot of stuff is going to become possible. Things that maybe weren't possible before, there's a lot of evidence for that. On the flip side, I think there's a lot of evidence that we really don't... That, like, that we don't really even know, like, how to talk about intelligence in a lot of ways, and that we don't have a lot of tests for intelligence. And so that, and maybe if we're not even testing it, like, it's hard to even know where we are, are we really okay? And so I think they're both true. Um, I think there's this big question of like, some people say like deep learning is just curve fitting. You're just like fitting a curve to some data. And then some people lately are asking in the AI circles, is there anything in our brain that's not just curve fitting? Are we just curve fitting? Are we just like fitting lines to all of our experiences and like, and we're just like evaluating a line and just running and running and running. And then some people are like, of course not, of course not. And then some people are like, yeah, of course we are. It's actually a very controversial question. Like, are we are we just like are we just like curves fitting to data of our lives? And then like whenever we reach a decision, we just like evaluate what the curve was last fit to. And and it's really interesting, a very controversial question. And people are talking about it, and everybody seems to be very certain that their answer is right, which is funny. And I think that's those there's two these are two big philosophical battles that are happening right now that no one really knows the answers to. Like, I, um, I think it is not crazy to define intelligence to mean that it's curve fitting. Like, it may be that it really was part of the ways in which one person differs from another person. Our person. You mean there's the data that we've had in our lives? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's another fun... Uh, there's this... Yeah, there's this... Uh, well, <laughs> if you like philosophy, there's some really fun philosophy for, like, AI conversations right now. Like, what is consciousness? And, like, you know, people having real... People having real theories. And they can... Like, some... I think the most interesting things people are saying about the nature of the mind right now are coming from AI people. And so there's this question, like, do we study the brain or do we study AI? I've studied the brain, I've studied AI. I actually think right now there's more things to learn about the nature of intelligence in the mind by just making AI and seeing how AI works 
because it's much faster. And this is one area that's really cool about software. You can just like make things all the time, just try it. You're not having to like wait for experiments. You don't have to like get authorization. You can just like try things on your computer. You just learn stuff. That's really liberating to do science in, in a machine, like in a purely software conceptual world. You're building and experimenting with just concepts and ideas and information. Nothing really exists, but it's very freeing. I want to be I'm passionate about technology and trying things technology. Um, yeah, I could go into what con into theories of consciousness, but maybe other AI things. Another AI thing that some people are talking about is like maybe instead of trying to like build like um, that like maybe not everything is just a deep learning block, but maybe we want to have programs and some of the parts of the programs is deep learning and some parts aren't. And maybe one of the next pieces of AI is to actually automatically evolve those programs. So I have like a computation, I have a graph of computation of different types of blocks that can do different types of things. And I'm going to evolve it like with evolutionary algorithms and try to figure out what types of things should be where. And sort of the idea is that maybe it's in scope to just say, figure out a program that just solves my problem. Even if it's not easy, it's like I'm using a sort block here and some deep learning here, another thing there, and just builds the whole thing out and solves it for you. Uh, which is cool. But I mean, on the flip side, it's not like you don't have anything to do. Uh, I used to do classical algorithms where you make everything by hand. And you get proud at some point of turning knobs and making up formulas, but actually turning knobs is not a proud thing. <laughs> and when you have the AI, it starts to get more abstract. You start asking questions like, what do I need to know to solve this problem? What does it mean to solve this problem? What types of computation is required to solve this? Like, do I need time? Do I need memory? Is this compute? Can I compress things? Do I have to know, you know, does space matter? Like, you, there's all these questions. And like, like if space matters, you're probably using convolutions. If time matters, maybe we're using recurrent neural networks. And then maybe you want, you know, maybe you, uh, you, you start to build these different types of things in there. And it's really interesting. It's very philosophical. And sometimes like big insights in AI can actually feel more like philosophical things. Like one time I was building an AI algorithm and it turned out that I was asking it for a very specific answer and was having a hard time. And so instead of asking for a specific answer, I asked it for one of 10 answers that were very vague. And all of a sudden it turned out that it's easier to be vague than it is to be right. And so all of a sudden it's very good at being vague and then I was able to turn those vague answers into specific answers, which is weird. This makes sense, like easy to be vague. It's like, I sense a person in your life. And like, oh, there is a person in my life. Like you can be vague, it's very easy to be right. But, but sometimes that's like that leads to different types of problem solving. So like it's very interesting to think about things like that. I don't know. That's that's cool too. It's like it, it, a lot of the AI stuff is actually liberating. It lets us think of really high level questions and like what what does it mean to solve problems? What does it mean to solve this problem? What does it mean to think about things? Like it's very it's very cool. I, I think it's, it's it's one of the more I think it's one of the most exciting things for me right now. Uh, I guess one more, doing science with AI is really important too. It's very possible that. A lot of areas of science are actually bottlenecked on our ability to do AI better. Because I'm going to say, find a problem, fix a problem, find a problem, fix a problem. Sometimes there's too many problems. You want to have something to solve all the problems, collect all the data, figure things out. And you know, it's very possible that you know robots will be inventing new materials and new structures just by basically evolving and figuring out things on their own. And so maybe the best way to solve a problem may be to build a machine to solve that problem. And you know, that's a very different way of looking at things. Um, or just gather all the data and then let it come out of the data. But don't necessarily try to figure out, I want one test that tells me an answer. Say, I want to gather just a billion data things and then just do a lot of analysis and then it'll just fall out. There's lots of new ways of approaching problems right now that are really exciting. Um, people are talking about all these things out there. So like they're discovering new drugs and materials and super, maybe people will figure out how to do room temperature superconductors by just having an AI algorithm that's like looking at all the things and then doing experiments on its own, like a little AI scientist. That would be pretty interesting, but what do you think about like the issues of having overfitting or the network? Like with AI, there's always issues of it not actually knowing if a solution is good, whereas a human would instantly know 
whether they're being tricked or whether they're actually looking at a solution. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think that when you put a human, when you, often when you put the human and AIs in exactly similar situations, the AIs work the same or better. I think sometimes it's hard to distinguish. Sometimes it's hard to distinguish, like when you, when you, when you see something that you know is wrong and the machine thinks is not wrong. The question is, what do I know that it doesn't? And sometimes what it means is that you have information from somewhere else in your life. Uh, but like when you go to a totally new domain that like you don't have information on and AI also doesn't have information on, often it'll actually do a good, as good or a better job. But I think when you have when you have knowledge that the machine doesn't, the question is. How do I imbue in that knowledge and those principles into the machine that it also knows the things that I know? So like for example, like data augmentation is a thing. Like if rotating the object makes it not work, then rotate the images a bunch and you know, so that way it knows the things should rotate. So a lot of it's about how do I put how do I build my knowledge into the program is the question. Don't build too much knowledge to the program because sometimes it might not be right. <laughs> sometimes what you do is you build the knowledge in, take it out slowly, or start with no knowledge and put add knowledge in slowly. But it's good to not ever make an assumption about what the machines can or can't do, it's always good to just to try it. And hopefully that's not too dangerous. <laughs> I think it's often not. Uh, anything else yeah. that can help? Yeah, I guess thank you. This was, um, yeah, you've had some really great insights. Yeah. I will have a lot to think about. Yeah, great questions. Though. Thank you so much for coming <laughs> on, and thank you for judging here, too. Oh, no problem. Yeah, yeah this is great.